Welcome to the My Faith Votes podcast. I'm Megan West. On today's episode, we're talking with Jack Phillips, the artist and owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood, Colorado. Jack is the Christian baker who could not create a custom-made wedding cake to celebrate the marriage between two men because of his sincerely held religious beliefs. But as you'll hear, it's about much more than just a cake. Steadfast, humble, calm, faithful, God-honoring. These are just some of the words that come to mind after we talk with Jack. You've probably watched his story in the news. He's gone all the way to the Supreme Court with his case. We'll be talking with Jack Phillips. He is the owner and artist at Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood, Colorado. And because Jack is actually still in the middle of litigation, his attorney from Alliance Defending Freedom will be joining him as well, Jake Warner. So would you please welcome Jack Phillips and Jake Warner. Hey, so great to see you guys. Thanks for having us. Wow. Well, Jack, I finished your book last night and when I put it down, I think the word that came to mind was unbelievable. And it came to mind for a few different reasons. First of all, it is unbelievable what you have been through for the past nine years with your case. It's unbelievable how faithful and calm, resilient and steadfast and actually how unapologetic of your your faith that you have remained throughout this. But also it's unbelievable how I think many Americans, especially Christians, really don't understand the impact of your case and the monumental effects that it is having on religious freedom. So we're going to get into that, but my goodness, um, thank you for writing this book. I'm excited for people to get to know you a little bit more and hear beyond the headlines of your story. What really inspired you to write this book? Well, when I was first approached with the idea of writing the book, my answer would have been, yeah, that could be a good idea. I'd like to write it and have a true story for my granddaughters, my grandson, and my kids to read and, and know what happened that day and what happened through all those years. But then as I you know, progressed through it, I realized that there was a platform there to share my faith and share a bigger part of the story. And then I realized you know, that this, this is somewhere back in not when considering writing a book, but as we were getting ready to go to the United States Supreme Court, I realized that this was not just a case about you know, me and my cakes and my business. But this is about every American's right to live and work freely according to their conscience without having to worry about fear of the government and these punishments that the government can dish out. So all those things rolled together combined helped me to uh, write this story. Well, it's an extremely powerful look inside what has been happening with you over the course of the past nine years. The book is called The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. But let's back up a little bit because I'd love for you to share a little bit about your testimony in what led to people knowing you as the Christian baker, because there's way more to it than that. Yeah, so my testimony as far as coming to salvation and faith in Jesus Christ uh, happened. I grew up going to church, you know, but when I was 17 years old or so, I quit going to church because um, it just didn't have an interest to me anymore. You know, all the Sunday school lessons that I heard, David and Goliath, Mary and Joseph, all those things, they just never stuck. The church part never stuck with me. And so I quit going to church, but then um, four or five years later, I'm married. I've got a couple kids and, you know, I'm paying my bills. I'm working hard. I've got a good job and, you know, not like a drug dealing alcoholic who woke up in the gutter in the rain and said, you know, God save me and I'll serve you or anything like that. It's just out of the blue on my way home from work. Um, I worked a night shift and it was a bright, clear, sunny morning in the spring back in 1978. 
um, the Holy Spirit came to me in my car, convicted me of my sin. And I say sin is my sin nature, not the things that I've done, but who I was, that I was a sinner and I needed a savior. And that savior was Jesus. And suddenly all that Sunday school stuff and church stuff all made sense. And rather than just turning to the Lord and saying, you're right, I want you to be my savior. I tried to negotiate. Let me clean up my life a little bit first and you'll get a better deal. He said, you can't, you're right, I'm yours. Hmm. 20 seconds, 10 seconds, I don't know how long it was, but just a few blocks since I was driving down the road on my way to my apartment. And at that time, you were not the owner of the Masterpiece Cake Shop. No. Um, what led to opening that particular shop? And is there um, significance to the name of it as well? Yeah, to open the shop, uh, go back to when I graduated high school, even before that, all my, every opportunity I had to take an an elective class or an extra class, it would have been in the art room because I love art. I love to draw and paint, sculpt and all those things. And uh, but then when I graduated, I needed a job. And a man lived across the street from me that owned a large wholesale bakery, like 100 employees and conveyor belts full of donuts and Danish and just a huge place. And he was gracious enough to hire me. And then after I got acclimated to actually working for a living, uh, I found that I really love baking. And, you know, maybe someday I'll open my own bakery. But then he bought out another bakery and brought in cake decorators, which is something I had never seen before. And I thought, that's it. I'm going to open my own bakery someday. I'm going to specialize in custom cakes. The cake will be my new canvas. And I knew immediately what the name of it would be. It would be Masterpiece Cake Shop because Masterpiece says art, cake shop says cakes. So you wouldn't come into my shop looking for a loaf of bread or a pie. Hopefully you come in looking for a, me too you know, design a cake, you know, masterpiece to help you celebrate your special events. Yeah, and so take us back then to that day in July of 2012, and you said 29 words in approximately 20 seconds. That's all it took to change your life. Yeah, two two men came into my store that afternoon. Again, another bright, sunny afternoon here in, in Denver, Lakewood, Colorado. And uh, it fell to me to go over to the wedding desk and sit and talk with them. And we have a special area set up in, in our shop you know, with many wedding cakes on display and it, you know, books that you can look through. And these two men were sitting there. And you might think, oh, red flags must have gone off right away. You know, two men at the wedding desk. But they could be brothers looking for an anniversary cake, a special occasion cake for you know their, their parents or something else. So I just went around the corner, introduced myself. I'm Jack. What can I do for you? They gave me their names. and. One of them said, you know, we're here to look at wedding cakes. And the other one piped up, yeah, it's for our wedding. Sorry, guys, I don't do cakes for same-sex weddings. And they stared at me blankly like, what did you just say? I'll sell you, you know, birthday cakes, shower cakes, sell you cookies and brownies. I just do a few cakes for same-sex weddings. And immediately they jumped up and they were swearing at me and flipping me off and stormed out the shop. And I'm like, what in the world just happened? That was crazy. I was stunned. But then they, you know, 20 minutes later, I'm back at work and the phone rings and you know, somebody calls me up and says, you know, are you the one who just turned away the gay couple? What in the world? I would never turn away anybody. Well, you just denied them a, a wedding cake. No, I told them that I couldn't create a wedding cake. I would sell them anything else, but the guy hung up on me and things just went crazy and crazier right from that moment. Right. And I think it's important for people to understand this wasn't just a decision you made that in that moment, that day, right. but that was something that you had set a standard for and actually had turned down other cakes in the past. Can you explain that a little bit? 
Yeah, back in 1993 in September is when we opened the shop. But prior to that, in the year or two that I was actually planning, you know, getting close to the realization of opening my own cake shop, my wife Debbie and I, we would have conversations about what it would look like and what we would create and what we would do. And among those discussions were, you know, well, cakes that we can't create. And some of the cakes that we decided we wouldn't create would be cakes that celebrated Halloween or cakes that were anti-American or racist or cakes that would uh, disparage or uh, insult anybody, even if, you know, people who identify as LGBT because of the message there. Or cakes that would, uh, we even talked about cakes that would celebrate same-sex weddings back in 1993, and that wasn't on anybody's radar. In fact, it was illegal in Colorado. No government official could endorse a same-sex wedding from their office, but yet they were going to force me to create cakes that go against my deeply held faith. So there were many cakes that we had decided that we couldn't create because of the message, never the person who was asking for them. Right, and so you had mentioned it a little bit, but the the response you got was pretty immediate and in extremely intense. Talk about some of the weeks following that incident in July and what was happening to you and your family and your shop and what was going on. Yeah, it just, that night, um, about 20 minutes after they left, the phone started ringing and it rang quite a few times before I closed up the shop. And it's always been my custom, my habit. If I'm there working late, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, and somebody comes to the door, the phone rings, I'm gonna answer it. But that afternoon I decided, I'm not answering the phone anymore this afternoon, this is crazy. I get home, I've got you know, emails piling up. By the time I got up the next morning, a couple hundred emails, all hateful. And the phone was ringing when I got to the shop. And again, I'm gonna open, I'm not gonna just answer it every time I'm there, but I waited until seven o'clock when we actually opened the doors. Sure enough, the phone calls that were coming were all hateful and just angry and vicious. And I, I feel that every call that came in, trying to be as polite as I could, and uh, then it just went, got crazier from there. And you said that even in your book, you've had death threats and had to call the police. And I, I can't even imagine what the intensity was around your family at the time of what was going through. And you had still had no idea what was about to come. Right. So talk about that next, what it led to, and just how the whole Supreme Court case came about. Yeah, so uh, like a week after uh, the two men left my shop on that Saturday, um, they staged a protest outside and they called the press and some of the press showed up and then they promised the press they were coming back the following week with much larger protest. And so that weekend, we didn't know what to expect, but we had lots of media, lots of press, lots of people both sides, you know, the protests going on and lots of support people coming by, you know, just we're here with you. And uh, one of the reporters that day um, asked me, are you aware that you uh, violated Colorado CRS you know, 24? He gave me the wrong number, but 34602. And uh, I'd never heard anything, but they said that there's a law that said that you're discriminating against people. I'm like, I can't be. But apparently there was. And the, these two men filed a complaint with the state of Colorado through the Colorado Civil Rights Division. They turned it to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. They found probable cause to pursue that complaint and took me to court. Unbelievable. So all during that time, what was going through your mind as far as how you, you know, I were you replaying that moment over and over and the decision that make? What what kept you standing firm in your faith, knowing that your convictions were something you needed to hold true to throughout all that chaos? 
Um, like I said at the beginning, before we opened the shop, we drew lines in the sand. These are cakes that we can't create. These are, you know, things that we can't cross and we can't do. And that was one of those decisions. You know, we can't create a cake to celebrate a marriage that goes against, you know, our biblical view of what God created marriage to be. And so there wasn't any doubt about that. And also immediately they came in on a Thursday, the following Tuesday, I had been connected through um, a reporter um, to Alliance Defending Freedom. And with a phone call from them to them, um, they asked me questions, you know, to make sure that I wasn't just prejudiced against them because of their orientation and made a clear note. the message of the cake. I gladly serve them anything else. And they, I was told, you know, well, if you hear from the state, then call us. And I hear from the state, you know, seriously, you can get sued for this. Sure enough. Then when I got the official papers, I think it was October, following October from July to October, then, uh, um, the court case began in earnest. In your book, you talk about the Civil Rights Commission and some of the things that they were saying about you and about religious freedom. And there was one particular commissioner who even described religious beliefs as despicable piece of rhetoric. Um, explain that part because what she said deeply impacted you for a very personal reason. Talk about that story a little bit. This commissioner said, like you said, we have we have a recording of this conversation that uh, um, religious freedom is a despicable piece of rhetoric that people have used it, you know, to justify things like the Holocaust and slavery. And so suddenly I'm like, she's comparing not creating cake because of the message that's inherent in a wedding cake to the Holocaust or to slavery. And anybody who would study, you know, slavery and the end of it here or in England knows that it was brought about by predominantly Christian um, actions in the Holocaust. That one was very personal because my dad served in World War II and he landed on Normandy. Hmm. Sorry. Uh, he landed on Normandy. He fought in France. He fought in Germany. He was in the Battle of the Bulge. He was wounded in a mortar attack where they you know, sent him back to England. They patched him back up and sent him back into combat. And he eventually ended up being part of a group that liberated Buchenwald concentration camp. Hmm. It was one of the most notorious concentration camps in Germany, and you can look it up. But he talked about the smell and the horrors of that place, and like, this is where they're coming from. You know, they're comparing the Holocaust, those kind of atrocities, to this message that I couldn't create on a cake. It was ludicrous. It was stunning, too. Yeah, and yeah, that was a deeply emotional part of your book, just to read, because I think we forget that beyond the media headlines, there is a real person dealing with all of this and words have such incredible power and when people say well why not just bake the cake it's it's the message so speak to why people have sometimes a hard time understanding between your actions of saying no i can't bake a cake not because of the person but because of the message and help kind of clarify that for people who may get hung up on what that really means yeah, people will say it's you know just eggs and sugar and butter, but that's what I create the canvas with. But also create the paints. I make the icings and the colors, and I use paintbrushes and a lot of artistic tools and materials to create these cakes, and they become expressions of my of my faith and my speech. I, my faith compels me to serve everybody that comes in the shop, but I can't create every message. But every cake I have that has a message like that is something that I would feel like. I'm part of that message. If it's a wedding cake and I've sat down and I've talked to the bride and I've talked to the groom and we've designed the cake 
we've gone through all the details, what colors they like, you know, what kind of style it is. Is it, I'm part of that. And I'm the one who's helping to communicate the message that they have for each other. I'm participating in that way. So it's not just eggs and sugar and butter and just make it. And it doesn't mean anything when it becomes that kind of a personal conviction and communication. It definitely means something. Right. And there's a quote in your book, you said, but asking me to creatively communicate a message I believe is wrong. That's asking me to change my relationship with the Lord. And I think right. that's really powerful to think of it that way, because that's that's really the truth. So, Jack, what actually led from the case going to the Supreme Court? Because it's really miraculous that the Supreme Court took the case. Yeah. So many people don't know how the Supreme Court works, but they're um, petitioned with 8,000 to 10,000 cases every year, and they can only take 70 or 80. So they have to go through all those cases and you know look at the merits of each case and see how important they are. And then they'll choose about 70 of them. But four of the justices have to agree on each case that they take. So they have to um, decide that. And then you get notified that your cases and select, but not personally by the court. I was in my office with my computer and the website called SCOTUS blog. SCOTUS means Supreme Court in the U.S. SCOTUSblog.com. The last day of the session, I see five words show up on the screen. It says, Masterpiece Cake Shop has been granted. And that was just, just so cool. Uh, I couldn't speak. I could hardly breathe. Um, I had nobody to share it with. I was alone in my shop except for a homeless guy who comes in. And I turned to him and I said, hey, you know, I get to go to the Supreme Court. He looks at me and, yeah, I got to go to court on Wednesday. <laughs> and that was the way that I started celebrating going to the United States Supreme Court. Wow. And I don't think people really understand because the, the Supreme Court ruling, you were hoping to get to the Supreme Court so that they would rule on it. But if they ruled in your favor, obviously that was a positive, but there's there was a very good chance that they would rule against you and explain yeah. some of the ramifications of had their ruling, which ultimately in the end was seven to two in your favor. What if they would have ruled against you in that case? What would have happened? Well, I read a little bit about this in the cost of my faith, but as we were deciding whether to go to the United States Supreme Court, not just petitioning it, um, one of the attorneys was telling me, you know, the odds of them taking your case are like really slim, less than 1%. And I'm thinking, well, let's go ahead and petition because the worst that could happen is, you know, I'm officially denied. They're already not hearing it. What's, you know, they can just yeah. tell me we're officially not hearing it. He said, no, the worst that could happen isn't that you're denied. The worst that could happen is that you're granted and then you lose. That's, I think, when it hit home that this case was not about me, this was not about Jack Phillips being able to make wedding cakes again. This was the point where I realized that every American's freedoms are at stake here. Even the, the two men who were suing me, we were fighting to defend their freedom to engage in free speech and freedom of religion, free exercise of religion. And this was so much larger than that. Hmm. Every American should be free to live and work according to their conscience without fear of punishment from the government like this. And that's what was at stake. The rights and, of every American. And Jake, feel free to step in here too, but help people understand what it means to have a rights of conscience and then kind of describe what it means to have um, the freedom of worship and freedom of religion. Because I think all those words can 
become different meanings and take on a life of them, their own. And in the context of this case, what do those things mean um, for a lay person who's not adept in the legal world? Sure. Well, Jack's case involved two very fundamental constitutional principles, one being the free exercise of religion and then two being free speech. And what we see around the world is that these foundational freedoms are key to society. When societies discard these freedoms, typically other important civil liberties follow course. They go away too. So how a society treats religious freedom and free speech is critical to human flourishing in that place. And that's why it was so critical um, for the court not only to hear Jack's case, but to rule in Jack's favor on these principles, because the government shouldn't have the power to force anyone to live and work inconsistent with their deepest beliefs. People shouldn't have to face punishment for living out their faith in public. Yet that's exactly what Jack's case was about. And thankfully, the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately ruled that people of faith can't be banished from the marketplace simply because the government disagrees with their faith. The government that has the power to force people like Jack Phillips to express messages that go against their deepest beliefs is the same government that could have the power to force anyone else to express messages that go against their beliefs, even if their beliefs are tremendously different from Jack's. It doesn't matter your viewpoint. A government with that much power is a danger to everyone. Right. And you would think that the Supreme Court made that ruling and things would be done and you would be okay. But that actually set off the next wave of cases for you. Describe what happened with what you call in the book um, Masterpiece 2 and Masterpiece 3. As I was saying, the day that the Supreme Court announced that they were going to take our case was an awesome day, mm. incredible day, going to the United States Supreme Court. We have people coming over, they're honking their horns at the shop and waving and media and press and all kinds of craziness. And in the midst of that, we get a phone call from an attorney here in Colorado, and this attorney is requesting a custom cake and the custom cake is going to be blue on the outside and pink on the inside and that those two colors were to celebrate a gender transition changing from a man to a woman so we explained to this attorney you know that's a cake that's a message that we can't express we can't create a cake like that but we'll gladly sell you other cakes other custom cakes if you like and or you're welcome to you know purchase anything in the shop it's not you or your gender identity it's the message of the cake so that was the day that the court granted our case. And then fast forward, we get our seven to two ruling six months later in June of 2018. And the court rules in our favor seven to two. And in that ruling, in the opinion, they uh, rebuked the uh, Colorado Civil Rights Commission for their hostility to my my faith and their unequal treatment of, of my case to other cases. Uh, for instance, a man here in Denver went to three other bakeries and asked them to create cakes, custom cakes that had anti-gay marriage sentiments on them. And all three of these bakeries said, we can't create those because that, that's not a message we want to create. And so this man went to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, filed a complaint, and the commission ruled in favor of those bakeries, as they should. Those bakeries should have the freedom to deny the right to deny expressing a message that goes against their foundational beliefs. But they didn't rule that way in my favor. So the court expressed that opinion that you were ruling unequally with Jack compared to the other bakeries, but rebuking the commission. 
And so that led to three weeks later, we get uh, the complaint from the commission saying they have probable cause to pursue the pink and blue cake that the, the attorney had requested that I was discriminating against this attorney's uh, gender identity. So we start up what we call Masterpiece 2. Wow. And now, and then that case actually was dismissed. Um, it, it explain a little bit what led to that being done and then what's now happening with your third case. Yeah, so Masterpiece 2 then was going forward and uh, there's a, a legal process that they call uh, deposition. And for me, prior to this, that's just a word I would hear in a movie or a TV show or a conversation. I don't know what it is. But a deposition is where the opposing counsel has up to six hours to just grill you and, and ask you questions and try and trip you up and, and twist your words to make you think you said something you didn't, make you say something that you don't want to, or just make it sound like that. And I had to, we were preparing to go through that deposition. We we're in the conference room with the attorneys, both sides, and court reporter. And uh, they said to the court reporters, the, uh, the opposing counsel, we need you to leave. We need to have a a private meeting here and the crux of that meeting was that they were going to dismiss the case and so that was good news yeah, they were dismissing the charges against me and we had a, a lawsuit filed against them in federal court and then that went away also um the reason that that um court was going to dismiss the case though is because we had evidence of them a recording of the new commission expressing the same hostility that the first commission did. So um, that case went away then. But then the, the attorney who filed a complaint with the commission waited past 90 days where he could have appealed that decision to uh, dismiss the case and asked them to reevaluate that decision, waited past that 90 days and then uh, took me to court in, civil in a civil complaint with the same cake and the same uh, same ramifications that I discriminated against this person because of sexual um, identity, gender identity. Right. And as of today, where does that case stand? Um, back in March, a couple months ago, uh, we were actually in trial um, in the Denver court. Um, it was done by Zoom, but uh, we were in trial, both sides you know, called witnesses and all that. And that was really one of the hardest things through this whole um, journey is watching my wife and my daughter stand trial, um, have to witness, you know, stand in the witness stand, and the opposing counsel, again, trying to twist their words and trap them, uh, watching God's graces. My wife would like, hear the question, uh, listen carefully, pause, and then answer truthfully and compellingly. And I thought, God, you're just so gracious. You're giving her all the, all the information that she needs. So anyway, all that, that trial ended then, the closing arguments were made in late March and the judge asked for a couple more briefs and we're waiting now for the judge to announce his decision. And what what would the ruling mean on both sides? And that's a question that you could probably get better answer from, from <laughs> Attorney Jake, so. <laughs> yeah, what would, what would a ruling mean in this case? Yeah. Uh, so the key question in this case is similar to the ones in Jack's prior cases, and that is, does the government have the power to force creative professionals like Jack to express messages that go against their deepest convictions? And, um, you know, we've raised First Amendment defenses and other arguments uh, supporting that principle. And this judge um, is going to make a, a call on that, whether the Constitution protects 
uh, Jack's freedom to exercise his faith in this way and his free speech rights. Um, and then depending on how that outcome uh, turns out, either party could appeal this case up to the Colorado Court of Appeals. And eventually this case could make it to the U.S. Supreme Court because of the constitutional issues at play in the case. Uh, we hope and trust that the judge will make uh, a good decision that affirms the constitutional freedom, not only of Jack, but of everyone to live consistently with their deepest beliefs. That's what the First Amendment promises to all of us. So, Jack, you have been through so much and people who don't, you know, aren't familiar with real life legal ramifications. And it's not just like on TV where a court, everything resolves itself in one hour. I mean, this is nine years of legal yeah. battles and the government really telling you what you can and can't do. What is your attitude towards the government right now as they've taken you through all of this? You know, God instituted marriage, he instituted family, sexuality, gender, all those things, as well as government. And I believe that you know, 250 years ago, our forefathers, the founding fathers, created this government from scratch with wisdom that they were given from God. You know, they didn't have a model to work with and they created a, a, a wonderful plan. But this plan is flawed because it's populated by people. But uh, watching it work its way through, watching my case work its way through the court, um, I see that you know our system works really well, and God gave us this government intentionally for His glory, and uh, I'm glad that it worked out the way it did, and it's it's uh, increased my faith in Him. And even though this case is far from over, um, I know that He's still faithful. Yeah, Amen to that. Well, we had um, an opportunity to have people submit a few questions to ask of you, and I just want to ask a few of them um, to let people have the opportunity just to hear from you a little bit from their perspective. But um, Cheryl in New York says, how, if at all, has your experience changed politics in Colorado? Have you seen anything different from your case and what's been playing out in the political world? Well, one answer to that is when the first charges came back in 2012, um, if I would have been found guilty, it could have been a $500 fine per charge and up to a year in jail. So there are two charges, so $1,000 and conceivably two years in jail. But then they realized that the jail time was, was too harsh. And so the, the jail aspect of it has been removed. The fines have been increased. But I'm not sure what other changes there are, but that was one that I noticed right off. Um, Mindy asks, how would things look for you if you would have simply baked the cake against your convictions? Um, you know, I don't know, because that wasn't anything that we'd ever uh, considered. We knew that uh, even going into the court, if we lost everything, we lose everything and we just go forward. But we never, never considered just making the cake. Yeah. Um, Mike in California says you've probably lost a lot of financial gain in this long ordeal, particularly in your business. But how have you seen God provide despite that? Um, I detail a couple of things in the story, not like financial provision or anything like that, but just watching God's hand um, where one day a local radio station was going to do a, a broadcast at our show. It was Friday. I got jury notice, jury duty notice earlier that week. And so Wednesday night, I had to call and see if I was going to be on the jury on that Friday, the same day that this radio station was going to be here. I called the number. My number wasn't called. So I get to go on and you know do this radio day. Then I get a letter a couple of weeks later saying that uh, I 
failed to appear for my jury duty. I call up the number and he said, you know, what was the date? I gave him the date. He said, oh, yeah, that date. Our computers were messed up. And it seems as though she told me something like everybody who was dismissed was called and everybody who was supposed to be called was dismissed. So, you know, God's provided that just those kind of things in miraculous ways all the way through. Well, and I think your book so clearly shows that God's hand has been throughout all of it. And, you know, as the verse in Romans says, you know, God will work all things together for yeah. the good of those who love him. And that's even the difficult moments. I think that comes across so clearly in your message and your testimony. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah, we read uh, in Philippians, Paul was in jail when he wrote that. Mm -hmm. And everybody talks about that as a book filled with joy. And I've experienced the same thing. We're going through all this, these things, these trials and uh, death threats and all this stuff. And yet God gives us joy. Fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are things that the Holy Spirit does through us. They're not gifts that we give to Him. They're gifts of the Spirit. They're gifts to, to us. And He's been gracious in all those things. Absolutely. And that's so clear in your book. And I think, you know, at My Faith Votes, we talk a lot about faith is part of every aspect of our life. And it's one thing to say that you're a Christian, but we need to be living out our faith in every area. And that includes politics, that includes in our work. And I think you're such a powerful example about there's no line between when we're a Christian and when we're not. It should influence everything. And um, at the end of your book, there's an appendix that's written by the attorneys that represented you at the Supreme Court. And I want to read just a little brief thing, because I think when I was reading through this, it was such a wake up call um, to me as a Christian, as far as we can't be silent. And I, I just I would love your perspective on this and just the a clarion call to Christians right now and what we're facing in our nation regarding religious freedom and freedom of speech. But um, it says many Americans still believe they will be able to skate under the radar, that the effects to restrict religious freedom, suppress free speech, and undermine our basic rights somehow won't harm them. They're convinced that if they can just stay out of the spotlight, they'll be all right. Jack's story destroys that illusion. If we hold beliefs that run counter to the current progressive narrative about gender, sexuality, marriage, and human dignity, the spotlight can very easily turn to us. And food for thought, perhaps that is precisely because so many of us have avoided the spotlight for far too long. Our silence has impaired our witness on these issues and likely helped facilitate a kind of religious intolerance, unlike anything we've seen in generations. And I think that last sentence, our silence has impaired our witness. Um, what, what would you say to Christians right now um, as we face a much more intense and quickly changing culture that is calling us to task? Are we going to believe in our biblical beliefs or are we going to compromise? What would you say to Christians? Yeah, um, like I said at the beginning, when my wife and I decided which cakes we would create, which cakes we would, and what the cake shop would look like, we drew our lines in the sand and we knew we couldn't cross those. And I had a, a friend, and I mentioned this in the Cost of My Faith as well, who was uh, talking with some other man about our case and that I'd drawn those lines. And he asked if they had drawn those lines, and sadly, many of them hadn't. But Christians need to draw those lines, and we need to know which battles we're going to fight, which ones are going to be worth it. And 
Jesus Christ is, and He's always provided everything we need, the love and the grace that we need to fight this this fight, and uh, He's worth it. Absolutely, and and like you said, we need to know where we'll draw the line. There's one final question for you because it's happening in Congress right now. It's something called the Equality Act, and it's already passed in the House. It's being considered in the Senate but um, it would prohibit the discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. And maybe Jake, you can speak into this as well, but this is legislation that will essentially ask Christians to draw that line in the sand um, and potentially be you know, a law that we're going to have to look at and evaluate within our Christian society and, and our, our government putting that suppression on religious freedom. Speak to that and the importance of um, why we need to be aware of what's happening in Congress right now regarding the Equality Act. Yeah, I can start with that, Megan. Uh, the Equality Act is um, a very dangerous piece of legislation. It essentially nationalizes the kind of law that officials use to try to silence and punish Jack to try to compel him to express messages that go against his deepest beliefs. So this law threatens every creative professional across the country who holds uh, Christian beliefs on marriage and gender, but it goes much further than that. We see the same kinds of laws being used to try to target adoption centers that try to place children in loving homes with moms and dads. Um, we see these laws affecting uh, women's shelters. For example, we represented uh, a client, a women's shelter in Alaska, um, who declined to have uh, a man who identifies as a woman come into the battered women's shelter and sleep three feet away from other women who had just come out of very harmful situations. So this law is a tremendous danger uh, to everyone, not just business owners, but um, all kinds of nonprofits and churches and, and everyone else. And we would uh, certainly ask your viewers to be aware of this piece of legislation, to talk to your Congress people about it, um, to do the research yourself, but it is um, one of the biggest threats to religious freedom that we've seen in a long time. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because actually if people go to our website, myfaithvotes.org, right at the top of our homepage, you can actually send a very easy message that encourages your senators to stand against this legislation. We've made it very simple for you to do that. So you can go to My Faith Votes and, um, and to tell your senators that this is dangerous and um, it would undermine the Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, and, and obviously our Christian faith and our deeply held beliefs. So Jack, any final thoughts as we wrap up? Um, any final encouragement? Maybe is there a particular verse or something that you've really leaned on to help you stay grounded in your faith? Yeah, um, there are so many verses, but one that comes to mind that I wish I could have incorporated in my book. So now I include it on the cover page when I uh, sign a book. Second uh, Chronicles 16, 9 says, the eyes of the Lord, Lord range throughout the world to strengthen the man whose heart is fully committed to him. And that's like John 3, 16, God so loved the world. This isn't a verse, Second Chronicles 16, 9, that can be taken out of context. It says that the Lord looks through the whole earth to find someone to give them strength and to show his strength through the man whose heart is fully committed to him. And when you are committed to him, he has shown us his strength so many times. He's given us his strength and he's shown his strength through us. That's one of my favorite 
favorite verses. That's a great one. Well, Jack, we will be praying for you and um, just know that so many people are standing behind you. And um, Jake, we thank you for being a part of this as well and giving your very helpful insights. And um, just thank you both for joining us today. We truly appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Jack's book, The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court, and also to learn more about Jack's Cake Shop, visit myfaithvotes.org and look for our interview with Jack Phillips. 